Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian, informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. Solving the Puzzle is based on Dr. Karazian's more than 20 years of experience working with patients throughout the U.S. and Europe. His exhaustive review of scientific research, his own published peer review research, and clinical models he has innovated through trial and error in working with thousands of complex patient cases. In Solving the Puzzle, Dr. Karazian discusses the impact of diet, nutrition, lifestyle, mental and emotional states, and nutraceuticals in managing chronic health conditions, teaching you about strategies hard-won through decades of clinical practice and research. Dr. Karazian's goal is to inform you about effective models for so-called mystery symptoms and conditions so you can regain control of your health and your life. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. Today, we had a many requests to speak about gluten and how it impacts the brain. So this is an important topic that I think is important to discuss in some detail. With the new format, I'm able to show you some PowerPoints. So let me share with you some slides. What I'd like to do is maybe give you some background on some research on gluten and the mechanisms that are involved, how gluten impacts the brain, and then also discuss testing and some key concepts, maybe for about 20 minutes, uh, 20, maybe sometimes 20, 20 to 30 minutes. And then I can then uh, take any questions that you have and thank you all for, for joining me. So if you guys are Looking at this slide here, this is a slide here on on, on on gluten in the brain. So let me go over some some key research concepts. And by the way, we just uh, modified our webpage. If you get a chance, please check out Dr. K News. We have all our online programs on there if you want to check them out. The one that would probably apply to today's concept if you want more information would be the program we have called Gut Health Solving the Puzzle and Food Sensitivity Solving the Puzzle. Um, and then we have courses coming up uh, on autoimmunity and Hashimoto's and so forth. Just And then if you go to the site, you can sign up with your email and then you get all the information about the courses and upcoming talks and um, free education and so forth. So here's the first thing I really want to discuss here. There's an intimate relationship when you're looking at how gluten impacts the brain, how even dietary proteins impact the brain um, between immune cells in the gastrointestinal tract, which you see on the right-hand side, and then the brain. And the immune system coordinates its function and its communication between these two with what are called cell proteins, uh, messenger proteins called cytokines and immunokines. So here what they're showing, for example, are immune cells in the gut called enteric glial cells, and then astroglial cells, which are found in the brain. And, and these different types of cells release mediators. So when there's inflammation in the gut, there's absolutely inflammation in the brain. And more and more research, and even some research that we've published, have found that when the gastrointestinal barrier breaks down, that also the blood-brain barrier breaks down. So this was a paper that was published in a peer-reviewed journal, and uh, uh, laboratory investigation, and they went and discussed all the research behind these these known mechanisms as a review, and they were really in reference to how gastrointestinal inflammation um, can lead to white matter lesions in the brain, as you see with things like multiple sclerosis and how inflammatory bowel disease is known to cause white matter lesions in the brain, and then the mechanisms behind these things. So when we have uh, people that have 
intestinal permeability, they usually have lots of food sensitivities, lots of bloating. They notice when they eat food, they get really swollen and inflamed. Uh, when they take a break from some foods that are very inflammatory, like wheat or dairy, they notice the inflammation goes down. But there's direct relationships between inflammation in the gastrointestinal tract, the gut, and inflammation in the brain. And here you can see some of these mechanisms. And even more importantly, when people start to get leaky gut, the leaky gut patterns also start to promote blood-brain barrier permeability. So gluten is one of the most uh, reactive food proteins we know that really causes relationships to happen between the brain. And when people eat gluten and have immune reactions to gluten, or even worse, if they have a genetic disease called celiac disease, then these inflammatory responses in the gut can have really, really devastating inflammatory reactions in the brain. So there's no single dietary protein that has become more of a trigger for neurological dysfunction and neurological autoimmunity than gluten. There is really no other protein. Milk is, is a second, close second, but milk and wheat are significantly uh, immune reactive uh, and they have been shown to clearly cause inflammation in the brain. So I'll show you some of this um, and some research. Now, just so you guys know, in neurology literature, um, you know, they, they refer to uh, this quote here, gluten sensitivity can be primarily and at times exclusively a neurological disease. And, and I want to clarify a few things. There's something called celiac disease, which many of you know about. And celiac disease is a genetic disorder where you have a certain gene type that makes you have a exaggerated immune response to gluten. And that involves what are called T-cells. And the, the gene type is something called HLA-DQ2 and 8. But that's different than gluten sensitivity. Gluten sensitivity means it's not even celiac disease. It just means you have antibodies to gluten. So you don't have to have celiac disease. Uh, if you react to gluten, that's called gluten sensitivity. So gluten sensitivity uh, itself, not celiac disease, has been shown at times to be exclusively neurological disease. And this is a common trend we're seeing in the neurology literature uh, because we know that these inflammatory reactions are, are really um, really significant. And uh, some people really refer to gluten as more of a neurological disease than a gastrointestinal disease. Now, this is also another key concept here. Uh, patients with an enteropathy, enteropathy means inflammation in the intestinal tract, represent only a third of patients with neurological manifestations uh, and gluten sensitivity. So about two thirds of people that actually have antibodies to gluten, have reactions to gluten, actually have brain symptoms. So these are the people that eat gluten and they just can't think, they can't focus, they can't concentrate, and they may not have severe leaky gut symptoms and bloating and distension and any, any type of gastrointestinal complaints at all. For, these, uh, for the majority of people that really react to gluten, the impact is really on the brain and not as much on the gut. So two-thirds of the reactions to gluten immune responses are really brain-based, not really gastrointestinal-based. Um, and then this is another paper that was published. This is more specific to celiac disease, which is a more severe form of gluten sensitivity. And they put on celiac disease can sometimes present in the guise of neurological disorders, which may greatly improve when a gluten-free diet is started properly. So many types of neurological diseases like MS or weird demyelinating disease or unknown neuropathies, they call them like idiopathic neuropathies, many times are related to gluten sensitivity or celiac disease. And this is what these reviewers in this research paper published mentioned, and that's for sure a real clinical scenario. And that is typically overlooked. So this is a slide that I made for a postgraduate course, but let me just show you the key concepts here. There's a lot of neurological conditions here. And this was a, this was a graph that summarizes what's been published in the peer-reviewed scientific literature of how gluten sensitivity 
can impact various functions. And I'll show you some, some, some images and some diagrams of these in a second here. But for example, gluten sensitivity has been shown to, let's just start here, impact cognitive impairment. So cognitive impairment would be the ability to focus, concentrate, recall, just to think. And, and the most common thing we see is, is brain fog. There's definitely gluten sensitivity associated with all the major psychiatric disorders that are out there, um, including bipolar disorder, anxiety, and then there are more serious neurological diseases like multiple systems atrophy, which is like a very severe form of uh, uh, Parkinsonian disease where people get stiffness and rigidity, restless leg syndrome, uh, neurological autoimmune diseases, unknown and early hearing loss has been shown with gluten sensitivity. Um, dementia uh, has been shown with uh, gluten sensitivity. Neuropathy, meaning like hands and feet burning type symptoms have been associated with gluten sensitivity. And the problem we have is that you know, the average neurologist doesn't really look at these mechanisms, doesn't do any kind of gastrointestinal or food protein sensitivity testing, doesn't evaluate for celiac disease. They kind of leave that out to the gastroenterologist. And then the gastroenterologist is just, you know, as you noticed, two thirds of people in the research shows don't have, they don't have any GI complaints. So when you have a neurological complaint caused by gluten and you walk into, um, a neurology department, they're typically not going to start looking at food proteins and gastrointestinal testing. So many, many people that really have these gluten-triggered neurological complications get overlooked, even when they go to the top neurology centers uh, throughout the world. So there's a kind of a gap between what's being published in the research and what actually gets implemented in, in uh, clinical practice. So remember, gluten sensitivity includes wheat, spelt, kamut. Oats uh, are typically not gluten-free but they're usually contaminated because they, they are transported by the same um, bins and trucks and stored in the same places. They, they almost get, always get contaminated. The only time oats are not uh, uh, a concern is if, you, if they were delivered directly from a uh, gluten-free oat farm. And then rye, barley, these are all gluten forms. And then hidden sources of gluten, soy sauce, food starches, food emulsifiers, food stabilizers, artificial food coloring, um, malt extract, flavored syrup, dextrins. Modified food starch is the most common term that's used for, for, for gluten. So if you're looking at things, be aware of that. Now, just quickly, we, we talked about gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. Let me clarify a few things. Because one of the other problems that happens when people have gluten-causing brain-related issues, they may even go see a specialist and they say, well, you know, the relations with the gluten only matter if you have celiac disease. And if you had celiac disease, you would have weight loss and you would have these genetic tests that show up, but that's not really what new research is showing. You don't have to have celiac disease to, to have dysfunction and so forth. So what you hear, see here is uh, it's a chart that says exposure to gluten. And then in this case, there's an immune reaction against gluten. So not everybody has immune reactions to gluten, but many people that have chronic pain, chronic fatigue, uh, uh, cognitive decline, uh, brain fog have some type of reaction to gluten. So what happens here is with gluten, you can see your enteropathy. That means like intestinal inflammation, intestinal symptoms, or without. So let's talk about the with enteropathy first. So if someone eats gluten and they know they get gastrointestinal symptoms and bloating and distension and pain and discomfort, um, and they have the gene type, which is called two or eight, then they have celiac disease. That's the classical pattern. However, there are many people that have intestinal inflammation from gluten that don't have the celiac disease gene type, but they have what's called gluten enteropathy non-celiac. And these people are typically ignored in the gastroenterology world, but that's changing now that you don't have to have these specific gene types. Other types of gene types 
uh, or also important that can cause significant intestinal inflammation in, in intestinal inflammatory responses. Now, with that enteropathy, this is where this is, gets a little scary because you can have someone has an immune reaction to gluten, never have any gastrointestinal symptoms, and then they get tissue inflammation, and then they can also have autoimmunity developed to many other tissues, and then they can also have issues related to gluteomorphin reactions. These are people who have emotional cognitive reactions against gluten and uh, they cause neurochemical imbalances. This is where the psychiatric pattern of gluten comes in. Gluten can become an opioid called gluteomorphins that can trigger these responses as well. So if you have, uh, you know, notice sensitivity to gluten, you just don't feel as well, you don't function, it could be more serious than you think. And if you kind of discounted symptoms of brain fog and depression and slow cognitive function and deteriorated mental speed when you when you eat bread and, and gluten-containing compounds, it is actually real. You know, you're not imagining it. And it can cause some long-term inflammation patterns in the brain and it can perpetuate, you know, ne- neurological diseases, especially neurodegenerative diseases. Let's talk about wheat and gluten and how it all comes in. This is an important diagram here too. So this is a diagram that I made to simplify the concepts. So here's wheat and wheat has a protein section and a lectin section. Um, now, lectin is a sugar protein, and the main form of that is wheat germaglutinin. And the reason this is important is because there are many people that have reactions to the lectin portion of wheat, not gluten itself. And, and wheat germaglutinin has been shown to cause severe neuroinflammation in some studies. And wheat germaglutinin has been shown to cause what's called molecular mimicry or cross-reactivity to other areas of the brain. And this is, this is important for me to highlight because you may notice that... You have significant reactions to gluten when you when you eat it and have brain symptoms, but when you get tested for gluten sensitivity or celiac disease, you don't show up for it. And part of the reason is because you may have a reaction to the lectin portion, not to the actual gluten, which is the protein portion of wheat. So then when you look at the protein portion of wheat, gluten can be broken down to different to gliadin and glutenin. These are different structures of the gluten protein. And then there's different branches of gliadin and there's glutenin. And then these uh, gluten proteins um, then get metabolized by an enzyme in the gut called transglutaminase into what's called deaminated gliadin. So if you look at this, and not to complicate things, there are many different uh, parts of gluten you can have an immune response to. So you can technically have an immune response just to glutenin and not to uh, gliadin. When most people get tested for gluten sensitivity, they are getting an alpha gliadin test. They're not getting beta, gamma, they're not getting glutenin, they're not getting wheat germ gluten testing. So they may test as if they don't have gluten sensitivity or have any immune reactions to gluten, where in fact they actually do. They're just only having one portion of the protein being tested. So if you've ever had any kind of testing done for gluten sensitivity, uh, if it just says gliadin, you, you pretty much only had alpha gliadin testing, which can be, can, can be a problem. And these are, let's say, epitopes. Epitopes are branches of the protein. So, for example, here's an antigen. Let's say it's gluten. You can see there's different branches of the protein, right? So, alpha gliadin is just one branch of the protein. This is the one that 98% of gluten testing is done on. But these other branches, uh, like gamma gliadin, for example, can be part of it. And then when they do studies where they look at patients, and they measure how many of them react to different portions of wheat, just so you know. Uh, like in this study of about 20 subjects, we only, when they measured alpha gliadin, only one, two, three, four of the 20 patients showed up to alpha gliadin, where uh, so many other people reacted to it, so many of the other variations of gluten. 
and I, and I keep emphasizing this point is because in the world of uh, immunology, all we can see is this big hole of people that actually have reactions to gluten, they're not getting proper testing done and not getting the complete picture tested. And then they then think that it's okay for them to eat gluten. And then they continue to have neuropsychiatric issues or brain fog or depression or you know, have multiple sclerosis. They, they're told, well, there's no connection. You know, you're, you don't have celiac because you don't have gluten. And, and that's just uh, an area of a uh, black hole between what research is publishing and what actual clinicians are doing. Now, when you look at gluten sensitivity, um, we also have to point out a few things. Gluten, and we talked about this in a previous uh, uh, talk, uh, but gluten is, it, proteins have changed. And the gluten that you're consuming today in an industrialized world is not the same gluten you probably had as a child. I mean, assuming you're you know, over the age of 30, but we do have new gluten proteins, which are, which, which are now called uh, modern wheat. And we used to have something called native gluten proteins, which were proteins that haven't been deaminated through food manufacturing processes. When they, when they process gluten, they change the protein so they can go through machines and process them and make them into bread and pretzels without sticking to all the equipment that makes the protein different. Um, there hasn't been genetic modification to gluten, but there's been what's called um, hybridization where seeds change to protein, making it much more reactive. So when you look at some of these studies being done on gluten, um, one of the things that we know that takes place is a mechanism called cross-reactivity. And here you can see uh, gliadin, which is a protein of gluten, as we discussed. And here's a part of the brain called the cerebellum. The area of the brain called the cerebellum is extremely sensitive to gluten. So we know that when people have antibodies to gluten, those antibodies can also bind to areas of the brain. And then that leads to immune reactions against that area of the brain. So here you can see an amino acid sequence of gluten. For example, each of these letters represents a different amino acid. So this is an amino acid sequence. And here's the amino acid sequence of cerebellum tissue. You can see that there's areas where the amino acid sequence is the same. When the amino acid sequence of two proteins are the same, antibodies made against one protein can, can also attach to those other tissues. So one of the scariest things about how gluten impacts the brain is through a process called cross-reactivity or also known as molecular mimicry. So a person will have antibodies to gliadin produced because they're gluten sensitive. And when they get those antibodies, those antibodies, because of the similarity of the protein structure, can then bind to areas of the brain. And when these antibodies bind to these areas of the brain, that can cause brain inflammation. And one of the most common findings is something called ataxia. So ataxia is... Um, when a person has inability to, to have proper balance. You can test this for yourself. You basically want to be able to see if you can walk in a straight line without shaking and falling all over and moving. You should be able to at least take three full steps without falling over with your eyes closed. So you first want to do it with your eyes open. Just pretend like you're walking on a uh, balance, balance beam and just one foot over the other and see if you can do that without any problems. And then if you can, then close your eyes. Now you should be able to take three full steps with your eyes closed without like shaking and falling all over the place. And if you can, that will be classified as some form of ataxia. And one of the most common forms of reactions to gluten is something called gluten ataxia because gluten can, can, can cross react with the same proteins in the brain. And they did a study of 68 patients that had gluten ataxia. So these are people that 
basically close their eyes. They try to walk in a straight line. They couldn't walk in a straight line uh, for more than three steps um, with their eyes closed. And even just standing, they were shaking and had poor balance. Um, and those are happening because the area of the brain called the cerebellum is, is degenerating in a sense, which happens with people that go insensitivity due to this cross-reactivity. And they wanted to see of these people that had this ataxia pattern and had also antibodies to gluten, which um, how many of them actually had what kind of other symptoms they had. So what they found was um, only 13% of them actually had any gastrointestinal symptoms. So very few people that actually have brain reactions to gluten actually have gastrointestinal symptoms. And gluten taxi is pretty serious. And if gluten taxi continues, it impacts cognitive function. Um, you know, everyone's focused on Alzheimer's disease, but something called cerebellar, cerebellar cognitive uh, affect disorder, which cerebellar degeneration starts to cause cognitive decline just as if a person had uh, Alzheimer's disease or dementia. So people continue to eat gluten. They notice they can't think, they can't focus, they can't concentrate. They get testing for celiac disease that doesn't show up. They get testing. Uh, they have no gastrointestinal symptoms. They get overlooked in the healthcare system. And then gluten continues to cause these inflammatory response in the brain. Uh, I published some research on gluten ataxia myself with cases. This is a case report that was published recently. And I want to show you a diagram that I made to kind of put it all together for you. It's a, it's a bit complicated. Um, I use this for postgraduate education, but I'm going to go through it slowly so you can see all the major responses that can happen with gluten. This kind of summarizes all the major areas of research of how gluten impacts the brain. So let me sh go through each of these with, with you one by one. So first of all, um, gluten sensitivity causes immune reactions to gluten. And there's proteins that are, that are reacted against called gluteomorphins and also proteinorphins. And these are part of the gluten protein structure. Remember, gluten has lots of different uh, proteins and structures. Well, some people have immune reactions to a part of the gluten protein called gluteomorphin. And when they get reacted, these immune reactions to gluteomorphins, they end up ending up with opioid, opioid imbalances. And these have been linked to mood disorders, depression, and neuropsychiatric neuro disorders. This has also been linked to um, what's called gluten, gluten withdrawal patterns. These are people that, for example, they go, Hey, I'm going to go gluten-free. And when they go gluten-free, their symptoms get dramatically worse. So this is, uh, for the most sense, almost like a person coming off some kind of drug like cocaine or, or some type of response like that, where they're not having the opioids from gluten that they're used to having. And they're, going through this withdrawal. And if they can get through it for the next seven to 10 days, then they'll be over it. But initially they'll feel I did better eating gluten than without it. And they think that their body needs it, but it really, it doesn't. So that's, that's a, that's a phenomena of how gluten impacts brain through the gluteomorphin opioid response. So alters neurochemistry. And one of the most common responses people get when they get these gluteomorphin responses besides depression and anxiety and psychiatric type symptoms uh, and severe depression is they get severe changes in their gastrointestinal system, which is called altered motility. These, these gluteomorphin responses also impact the gut. And these opioid receptors in the gut um, have a withdrawal reaction and have adverse imbalances. So the patients end up with like severe um, bowel urgencies and 
get symptoms like they never had before until they went off gluten. So for some people, and we don't know how, we don't know what percentage of the population they are, but there are definitely patients when they try to go gluten-free, they have these reactions. It's an opioid response and it goes away if they get through it about seven to 10 days, just like, just like drug, drug withdrawal. Now, another, another mechanism of how gluten sensitivity impacts the brain is that gluten impacts the brain and causes inflammation. So that first image I showed you where immune cells in the gut also communicate with the immune cells in the brain is really important. So inflammation in the gut uh, activates uh, gut immune cells. Those gut immune cells send messenger proteins to cells in the brain called neuroglia. Those neuroglia get activated and then the brain gets inflamed. And when the brain gets inflamed, nerve conduction synapses slow down. Inflammation in the brain slows down synapses and, and patients just can't think, they can't focus, they can't get their thought process going on. So those are the things that happen with it. So basically some people that, that have immune reactions to gluten, um, they get severe brain inflammation when they eat it. They can even have their blood brain barrier, gut barrier breakdown. They can set up the stage for neurological autoimmunity. They can decrease blood flow to their brain as their brain gets inflamed, their messenger synaptic pathways become slower and they just don't function well. And they walk in the healthcare system and they get diagnosed with chronic depressive disorder or chronic anxiety disorder or some other name. And uh, they get told they don't have celiac disease if they're even tested that way. And then they continue to, to have problems with them. So lots of papers have been published where they see white matter lesions throughout the brain. This is, for example, another study which shows lack of blood flow with people that have gluten sensitivity. And this is one with celiac disease. And for the most part, inflammation in the gut causes inflammation in the brain. And it's not uncommon to see what are called hyperintensities, these white matter lesions with people that have uh, gluten sensitivity. And numerous studies have now shown that people that have any kind of inflammation in the gut, like any kind of inflammatory bowel disorder, have a much, much, much higher rate of these white matter lesions in their brain, which is basically inflammation destroying parts of the sheath of the brain called myelin. So those are pretty important. So, you know, gluten is a serious issue. If you have any kind of cognitive decline, you should know about these. And then there's been studies published where they identify these white matter lesions. You can see them here on MRI and people go on a gluten-free diet and, and sometimes they completely resolve that the inflammation stops in their brain, which is pretty fascinating. Um, this is a study where they did a different type of PET scan where they can see inflammation caused by gluten and specifically to the area of the cerebellum and it's cross-reactivity. And then when they decrease exposure, these things stop happening. And then they've had biopsy studies where they see these uh, molecular mimic cross-reactive studies in the brain. You can see areas of the brain degenerate because of those cross-reactions. This was a case study that was published where they took a patient that was having symptoms like ALS and they were losing their ability to button their shirt and they were getting weak and they did initial MRI scans. And if you look on this MRI, you can see this area here. This is injury to the brain. So the white matter lesion, you can see white matter lesion here. You can see white matter lesion here. And then they didn't know they were gluten sensitive. They continued to eat gluten. And within, uh, I think it was six to nine months, this lesion here progressed out to here. And then this lesion here progressed all the way out to here. This lesion here progressed all the way out to this lesion here. And then they tested the patient and found out they were reactive to gluten. They removed gluten and this lesion here healed to this, this big lesion here reduced down to this, and this big old lesion here reduced down just within a few months. So for some people, these, these uh, reactions in the brain are significant and very inflammatory and they can't start to show up in an MRI. Now, 
most people that have reactions to gluten have brain-related symptoms, won't have a severe distraction where it shows up in an, an MRI. But many of these types of lesions, we can see in the white matter, the, the white area that's really bright here, those are inflammation. This was found with the cross-reactivity, glutentaxia. And over a period of time, if these things aren't managed, the area of the brain starts to degenerate. So it becomes kind of scary. Here's another patient that had gluten sensitivity. You can see the white matter injury here, and they, they kept eating gluten. And within 15 months, their injury progressed all the way across their brain. And over a period of time, this actual volume will change, and that area of the brain will atrophy. So it's pretty, pretty scary. So uh, the most common area of the brain that's involved with gluten is the area called the cerebellum. When the cerebellum isn't working, the most common thing people have is what's called the taxia. And a taxia means when you close your eyes and walk in a straight line, that you can't do it. And these are all the different causes for ataxia that I wrote down here, like head trauma or stroke or MS or peripheral neuropathy. But if someone has sporadic ataxia, like they don't know, like some days their ataxia is better than others and they haven't had a stroke and they haven't had a brain injury and there's no reason why their balance would be off. They don't have like a neuropathy in their feet. The most common cause of that is something called idiopathic sporadic ataxia. And the most common cause of that is, by the way, gluten sensitivity. So really, you know, easy way you can check to see if you're having a reaction to gluten is first of all, go gluten-free for um, a good two, three weeks. Don't have any exposure of any kind. And you definitely should also go milk, go gluten and dairy-free because gluten and milk are together and see if your balance improves. If you have a hard time walking a straight line and see if your cognitive functions improve. So those are, those are pretty important. Anyways, those are the key things I want to share with you. Also, if you want to learn more about how food sensitivities impact the, the body overall, besides just gluten in the brain and one more about gut, please check out these courses. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take some questions and try to clarify these things. Also, let me know if the format of showing you some slides was useful to you, because usually I just have been, have been talking. Okay. There's some questions. Okay. Yes. We've got lots of questions. Okay. Victoria is asking when, what testing for children who have gluten-free, what's the testing for children who are, who you think have a gluten sensitivity? And if they are positive, how do you let them know? Because it can be a very socially, have a lot of social ramifications. Right. So it depends on the ch child, child's age. Okay. So if they're not in school yet, the only thing that will make it hard is if the parents continue to go. Like, so number one, if, if you have a child that has gluten sensitivity, you should just get a gluten-free household, probably gluten-dairy-free. And I keep saying gluten-dairy-free because more and more information keeps coming out of how similar gluten and wheat proteins are together. So when you react against one, you react against the other. And then in communities, for example, in the uh, autism community where gluten-free diets are typically used, they almost always now resort to a gluten-dairy-free diet because they know gluten-free is not enough. Mm -hmm. So, and then working, I can tell you with autoimmune disease patients is the same thing. They notice that gluten-free is usually not enough. So it's just gluten and dairy-free. And this is why things like uh, uh, autoimmune paleo diet, for example, have become very popular because it's, you know, gluten dairy free and there's just proteins that are very inflammatory uh, for the brain. But if your child tests positive, um, the best thing to do is remove the household. And then um, like we went through that as parents, um, our daughter, we, you know, we put on a gluten free diet. Um, not that like, because of celiac disease issues, but just no gluten is very inflammatory for the brain. And we wanted to decrease her exposure to that. Um, so she just pretty much got used to it. And you just have to, how would you answer? How would you give some comment here? Come to the mic a little bit closer and say, what have you noticed um, for, as a parent? As a parent, I, it truly is, hi, it truly is um, as how you handle it as a parent. 
her school was amazing. We would, you know, everyone says, well, what about birthday parties and snacks and things at school? Well, you send, you know, if you do sugar, you send in the gluten-free, dairy-free Oreo cookies. I don't even know what they're called anymore <laughs> to them, to the, to the school and talk with the teacher beforehand. And then it's you all. And then what I was did was um, when someone would have a party, the teacher would go and get Maisie a couple cookies. Right. And sometimes the, her little friends would say, oh, can I have the cookies Maisie had? I told the teacher, absolutely. Cause then it makes it more normal, more of a normalcy thing. And also I let our child know this doesn't make your belly feel good. When you, if you have this stuff, that's how she would react to it. So, it, so and sometimes, she it's chooses, and sometimes it's not fun, and but I say, you know, if you didn't get the birthday cake or whatever, but we'll get a nice treat when you're, when we come home, maybe we'll have an apple or something, whatever it was, or we do something fun. Like just, it's, it's how you use it as a paradigm. It's never, I've never made me, our daughter feel like she's a victim of not being able to have gluten. All right. It's not, it doesn't make her feel good. Hurts her belly. I'm not getting, she's not going to have it. And she's, she's correlated that and recognizes it. You could put the biggest piece of chocolate cake in front of her and tell her it has gluten. She's not going to touch it. It's just, she just doesn't make her, it doesn't make her feel well. It's up to the parent to decide. But if I went in with the attitude of, oh, poor her doesn't get this. It's yeah. a different story, but that's yeah. how we parent. So, yeah. Okay. I'm not doing that anymore. That's it. <laughs> Okay. So anyways, um, uh, yeah. So as a parent, listen, you, just, you get to like, we, for us as parents, we just said, um, you know, sometimes you just can't eat it. It's the way the life works. It's the way the world is <laughs> to get, get used to it. Yeah. And uh, they, they adapt. So no, I will tell you this, if your child has gluten sensitivity and you test it and it's positive, like it is really a big deal. Like yeah. you have to understand gray matter fully develops by age six, white matter fully develops by 18, 19, 20. And the brain is still cooking and developing all the way through um, to, to the age 20. So neurons are still branching, neurons are connecting with each other um, and, and gluten inflammatory responses can for sure uh, impact the brain and even potentially reduce their brain's potential as they develop. So that's why it's strongly linked with childhood developmental disorders. And um, it just has to happen, you know? Right. Okay, next question. Sorry, and I have one more thing to say about that. Sorry, yeah. I even said I wasn't going to. Um, and one thing too, is that she would tell, she was very open about it with her friends when they yeah. were little. And her, she would tell her friends, you know, it hurts my stomach. And so her friends would actually come back from dinner the night with their with their families and go, oh, Maisie, guess what? I, my restaurant that I went to has gluten-free pasta. You can go yeah. here. Like it just becomes, yeah. if you don't make it a weird thing, it's just your normal life. Everybody's yeah. got something. You deal with it. Yeah. And, and also you, you see other things happen. I don't really just show them. You know, for most people, being gluten-free is not easy. They have to learn how to do it. Uh, once they get used to it, it's pretty easy. There's lots of gluten-free options these days. Um, in, in most countries, uh, it's getting better and better. And also, uh, some people, once they become gluten-free for a period of time, let's say a month or so, when they get the exposure, it's just not worth it. They just don't want to reduce their brain function to that level once they get once they notice what it's like without it. And some people don't even know what their brain function potential is until they go, go gluten-free for a period of time. And as if you can see from all the studies that was showing you and on different gluten branches and gluten proteins, um, sometimes you're not going to test if you just have alpha gliadin or the testing that's available for you for what has been published in the literature of how people can react to, to gluten. So it could be wheat germ gluten that's not being tested when you get screened for celiac disease. And that's what you're reacting to. And that's why sometimes just going off gluten for a month will really be very diagnostic too. You just have to be 100% gluten-free. You can't have little bites or 
or contaminations or trace exposures to really know how it's impacting you. Okay, next question. Okay, so now Carol's asking, when you, how do you know when to choose a gluten-free diet versus an AIP diet? Well, again, if you're going to go gluten-free, I would recommend you go gluten and dairy-free because mm-hmm. um, of the similarities in proteins. But autoimmune paleo diet is a little bit step up from gluten-free diet because you actually go off all grains. And I would say if you have an autoimmune disease, you probably would be better going on an autoimmune paleo diet. Um, you can experiment and see which ones work better for you. Ultimately, when it comes to diets, you will feel it. Like you don't have to uh, like go on one blog and go, well, this guy says this, and this guy says that. And I don't know what this guy, I don't trust this guy. Your body will tell you very quickly <laughs> what your body will react to, but you won't know unless you eliminate that, those food proteins for a period of time. And then your immune system has a chance to calm down. And as your inflammation goes down of how much impact it's really having with you, and then you'll really know once you can reintroduce the food. So this is what they call elimination provocation. You eliminate the food for a period of time, and then you get provoked by it. So um, you can eliminate a gluten, to go on a gluten dairy fried for a period of a while, see how you feel. You can then move into an autoimmune paleo and see how you feel. Then you can try adding some of those foods back in and see what works for you. And those are ways you can, you can determine um, what the diet is that works best for you. Okay. This is from Wendy. Are there people who have no adverse effects from gluten or is everyone somewhat affected? There are actually people that don't react to gluten. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's, you know, it's, it's tough because people that are chronically sick and have friends that are chronically sick and then constantly chronically, you know, and communities and social media where everyone's focused on illness and suffering and pain and inflammation and whatever it may be or an autoimmune disease. Um, they, you kind of, you kind of think, well, everyone's got to have this. Well, there is a high degree of people that have autoimmune disease. Current research shows, for example, somewhere around six to seven percent of the population have known autoimmune disease, and the numbers are much higher than that if they look account for people that haven't diagnosed properly yet. And those people mostly have uh, reactions to gluten because of the immune system is overactive and it's such an inflammatory protein. But there are people that don't have autoimmune disease and people that don't react to gluten, and uh, they do exist. Sure, of course. Okay, so Rita's asking, could major mental issues be misdiagnosed as gluten sensitivity, like schizophrenia, rage, mental issues? Uh, Absolutely. It's it's well-published and well-reported in literature, and I think I showed you at least one of those studies quickly, but many, many mental disorders like uh, bipolar disorder, chronic anxiety disorders, major depressive disorders have been linked with gluten sensitivity. And there has been a clear resolution of those symptoms when they actually go gluten-free. And again, I would encourage you just to go gluten dairy-free always, not just gluten-free. Okay. So then Dominique is asking, I've done an elimination diet where I cut out gluten for several months and I didn't notice any difference in my symptoms. Does that mean gluten shouldn't be an issue for me? Well, you won't really know if, if you cut out for several months, you didn't notice a big difference. Um, you, you probably won't know unless you get exposed like heavily again. Um, it really depends on, it really depends on how strict you want to be with your health and yourself. Like for example, I've been gluten-free for, for 20 years. I don't have celiac disease. Uh, if I get exposed to gluten, my brain function goes down. I don't like the way that, I don't want to like the way that feels, but being gluten-free doesn't mean like I, I notice a big difference because my brain function is usually working most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, gluten is the only variable that changes it, but it, 
So it's up to you. I mean, you have to, you can always do immunological testing. Um, if you do have access to Cyrex labs, C-Y-R-E-X, they do check the entire gluten proteome. That would be the best place to get a very thorough gluten test. I know you can definitely do it in the U.S. and U.K. Um, there's a company called Regenerous that's a distributor for them. And also, um, if you can ship it FedEx to the lab, they can get the test done for you. But that will check the entire spectrum of gluten. And that would be a really good way to know if you actually have any of these subtle gluten reactions. Okay. So um, if wheat symptoms are eliminated by digestive enzymes, does that mean it's still a problem? Well, again, if wheat symptoms are resolved by taking digestive enzymes, yes, that could still be a problem because mm -hmm. the digestive enzymes are breaking down the protein. So if they break down the protein, then the protein, let me put it in a different way. When you eat a food, when you eat a food like gluten, it's a big protein. As long as it's a big protein, your immune system reacts against it. What enzymes do is they break it down into little tiny amino acids and the immune system can't react against amino acids. So what you're doing when you take enzymes is you're, you're speeding up the time that gluten proteins hang out for your immune system to react. But the fact you're having symptoms and you eat gluten means you react to it, okay? And that gap of time between when you eat it and before it's all broken down, you're getting severe inflammation. You're probably even getting, maybe even getting neuroinflammation. You do it on a regular basis, you're creating an inflammatory cascade. Now, using enzymes to, to break down food proteins is really important. We talked about in one of our programs, the immune, 3D Immune Tolerance Program, which is a course that really goes into how to calm down or overactive immune system. And using enzymes is one part of it. But if you notice symptoms and you have to eat, take enzymes to break down food protein, then you are sensitive to it. Mm -hmm. And you're still having reactions for the time it takes when you first ingest it until finally your, your enzymes break it down. And it could, that, could, that could be a gap of an hour and a half, you know, two hours, period, where you're triggering a pretty significant inflammatory response. Right. And also remember, the studies that are showing uh, two-thirds of people and numbers are similar in other studies uh, the majority of people that react to gluten have no GI manifestations right. at all. They just have brain manifestations. Yep. You can't feel those. Okay. Uh, Sam is saying, if something says gluten-free, is there anything else you should be checking for on the label for? Well, if it says gluten-free, for, for the most part, they're following the country's criteria what gluten-free is. There can be, um, you know, in issues where it's dairy is still there. And, you know, we talked about cross-reactivity with milk. There are some people that have gluten sensitivity. They also cross-react with other grains. So mm -hmm. other grains can also sometimes cross-react with people that are gluten sensitive. And this is why they do better just being grain-free altogether. This is why paleo has become very popular. So if you've gone gluten-free and haven't really noticed a big difference, you may really make sure you've gone dairy-free also. And if you want to even go be more thorough, which is a good idea, you might want to just go paleo and be grain-free for a period of time because of those proteins are so similar to each other. So that would be you know, some things to think about. Also realize that gluten-free products are highly refined. They're going to cause significant blood sugar surges. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I know when some people are gluten-free, they, they fill up their house with gluten-free cookies and gluten-free bread and everything can find gluten-free. And they're eating a lot of this as an emotional, I don't know, recovery or <laughs> to deal with being gluten-free. Um, but they end up getting lots of these refined sugar, refined starches and fibers and gluten-free products, which is how they're made. And they cause severe blood sugar spikes. Then they don't feel well and <laughs> have other issues. So those are all factors I think about. Okay. Okay. Uh, can gluten and dairy be recognized as asthma causes? 
Well, absolutely. Any, any, any food protein can trigger an immune response. If someone is gluten sensitive and there are links between asthma and, and both milk and dairy protein sensitivities out there in the literature. So yes, it could be a factor. Okay. So Valerie's asking if traveling internationally, like out of the U S is yeah. it okay to eat gluten? Gluten. I thought they had less processing, less modification. Right. What do you think? Yes. The, so, <laughs> so, um, for example, there are countries where there's there's more of what's called native gluten, and we talked about this also before, but let's, let's review it. One of the other issues why gluten has become very reactive uh, with, with modern wheat is because of the use of pesticides, and, and the pesticide most linked to it that's been published so far has been glyphosates. So glyphosates bind to gluten and they change the structure of the protein. And that protein becomes much, much more inflammatory, much, much more immune reactive. So what people actually are noticing is when they go to countries where glyphosates are banned or, or not used very much at all, even though they're still allowed, um, they don't feel reactions. Like if you go to Japan, there are no glyphosates. So the, the, the wheat there is not as reactive to some people as other people. Some people notice the same thing when they go to different countries in Europe. Like for example, France isn't completely glyphosate free yet. It's not completely banned, but Farmers just don't use it. It contaminates their field. They, they don't. They don't want to be around it. They're culturally not into using uh, pesticides like that. So, majority of the grain in France, for example, is, is does not contain glyphosate. So, some people like go to France and have a baguette, and they don't notice the same reaction they did in the U.S. But the other hand, some people with celiac disease they go, they go to France or Japan with without these new glyphosate bound proteins, and they still have severe inflammatory responses. Mm-hmm. So, for some people. They notice that the native wheat, without how pesticides can potentially change the structure of the protein, um, are different when they when they travel. For people that have full blown celiac disease, it doesn't really matter. Okay. They'll they'll still have reaction no matter what. Yeah, Catherine, if someone has word finding problems, energy problems, and peripheral neuropathy, would you recommend gluten and dairy free diet or the IP diet, or would you recommend to do? Well. You know, sometimes to be quite honest, if you like, if you have a lot of symptoms, like things you were mentioning, neuropathy, brain fog, fatigue, energy issues, all those things, it's just easier to go grain-free and dairy-free altogether than, than just go gluten-free. <laughs> it just makes it easier when you shop, makes it easier when you find food choices. Because if you go, let's say, autumn and paleo, then you know you can be having salads and vegetables and fruits you're just not gonna have any grains right so you can have like fish and a salad and you can have chicken and with some veggies and it's pretty easy to follow that for let's say a good month and see how you feel and then once you've kind of gone the so-called autoimmune paleo where you've gotten rid of all grains and milk then you can start to introduce some foods back in and see what happens and see if you notice some symptoms that will also put out another concept when you do an elimination provocation diet there'll be some immune reaction to food proteins. And let's say someone had a severe reaction to, I don't know, uh, almond, almond, almond protein, like almond milk or almond flour. And they were off all almond flour and, and they were consuming it. They were not consuming for a month. And all of a sudden they eat it again. Their reaction may be much, much more noticeable than before because in that month where they were constantly reacting to almonds, because they were, let's say, eating those regularly, those mast cells and immune cells have really um, grown with histamine and, and other chemicals, and the reaction is much more severe. So it's also not uncommon if you eliminate foods 
for a good month and then, and then expose yourself to them again, that your reaction to them will be much more severe. And this is where people feel like they actually have developed a food sensitivity since going off that food. But if they continue to eat that food, their immune response won't be as aggressive after that first exposure. And they'll just go back to having brain fog and joint pain and all the things that they notice go away with it. And we talk about these concepts in the food sensitivity solving the puzzle program we have if you're interested to learn more about these things like elimination provocation. Oh, that reminds me. Someone asked, what does GAD stand for? Yeah, we didn't cover that. G- GAD is, uh, is stands for glutamic acid decarboxylase. It's a protein and there's different forms of GAD. It's GAD65, GAD67. Um, and they're, they're the target protein for people that get cerebellar um, inflammatory reactions to gluten. It's also the target protein for people that develop type one diabetes. The same protein is found in the pancreas and it's also found in the other brain called the cerebellum. And gluten antibodies have been shown to cross-react with both of them. And that's why there's some really strong links and associations in the literature, uh, scientific literature with gluten ataxia, gluten causing brain degeneration, and then gluten triggering type one diabetes, gluten and milk, actually both cross-react with GAD65. Okay. Um, a lot of people are asking, when you say dairy-free, do you also mean goat and sheep? Yes. And So when we use the word dairy, what we're really referring to is, um, um, is the protein in milk called casein, C-A-S-E-I-N, C-A-S-A-I-N, casein. And casein is found in sheep, goat, milk. I mean, I mean, all types of milks, except uh, like uh, nut milks, like like uh, almond milk, for example, or rice milk won't have casein, but the highest amount of casein is in, is in cow milk and there's less casein in goat. That's why some people go, Oh, I can have goat milk or goat cheese, but I can't have cow, cow, cow milk because of the amount of casein in there. But in reality, you really need to go off all animal milk. Uh, and when you're trying to be, you go on a dairy free diet. So, just like, you know, how we said gluten, there's this gamma gliad and glutenin and gluteomorphin, all different branches of gluten. The same thing with milk. There's alpha casein, beta casein, milk butyrophilin. There's different proteins of milk. So even if you may have tested negative um, for casein, you may, you may still have reactions. Okay, so Liz is asking, um, are there other foods that have cross-sensitivity reactivity with gluten? Yeah. So the most common foods that cross-react with gluten are milk and other grains. So those are the main ones. And this is why, you know, autoimmune disease uh, patients that typically have an overzealous immune system and react to gluten, because it's especially what called modern gluten. They also notice they don't feel better until they go gluten-free and uh, grain-free. Now I can tell you before all these names, like autoimmune paleo became popular and gluten-free diets were trendy. I remember you know, as a young, young person <laughs> in practice, seeing my, seeing patients come in that would bring in their own food that autoimmune disease all the time. And they're like, I have to bring my own food. I can't eat out anymore. I can't trust what I get exposed to. And basically what they were eating without the name today was an autoimmune paleo diet. So we used to call it just caveman food, you know, <laughs> and then over time it got popularized and the, the term paleo and, and came in and then later on autoimmune paleo. But Back in the old days, we're like, if you didn't, if you couldn't hunter and gather, then you couldn't find the food they're hunter and gathering, then don't eat it. And those were proteins that were least reactive. Okay. So Victoria's asking, what are your thoughts to eating gluten once in a while? 
if you have a sensitivity, can you get away with it? What do you think? Well, obviously, you know, risk benefit ratio, ideally it would be like, no, why would you do that? But it depends on how severe your action is. Like if you have MS, multiple sclerosis, and you're dealing with a neurological autoimmune disease, then the answer would be no, you just get it out of your life. If you just notice some inflammation and you notice, hey, you can travel to a great country and if you get exposed, you're not, it's not going to be the end of the world. You just notice you're a little more bloated or swollen and you're fine. Then maybe you experience the food culture. It's going to be a personal decision you make. I would say it's absolutely something to not consider if you have an autoimmune disease because the, the inflammatory responses can be very severe. Absolutely something not to consider if you have celiac disease. So with celiac disease, the T cell response, which is part of the immune response that reacts to gluten, some studies have shown one trace exposure can activate them for up to six months. So you get this heightened state of inflammation that, that's more than just the meal you ate if you have celiac disease. So if you just have some subtle gluten sensitivity and you're gluten free just to help your brain function, you know, you have to risk, you have to figure if you can handle the inflammation from it. Just like some people don't eat a lot of sugar and they eat sugar, they feel worse, but it was worth it for them. <laughs> but if you have an autoimmune disease or celiac disease, you can't, you can't play that game Okay. without some health consequences. Okay. Um, do you have any idea of the percentage of people who are gluten sensitive? Yes, I do, because we published a study on this. Well, we we did a study. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Uh, I mean, we, we, we take a snapshot of the U.S. population, not the entire world population. But there's a paper we published in the journal called Nutrients, which is a scientific journal. Uh, and in this study is done with Dr. Vijdani and myself. Um, well, we took 400 healthy blood donors, that, and we stratified them to age and sex and uh, race based on the U.S. population. And then we wanted to see what percentage of them actually have antibodies to all of the gluten branches. So we checked gamma gliadin, alpha gliadin, glutenin, and gluteomorphin, and alpha casein, beta casein, milk neutrophilin, milk and wheat. And of a, of a population that's healthy, that has no disease, what, what, what percentages do we see? We found it was around 15 to 20% in that range of a normal, healthy population. Now, if we took a blood sample of autoimmune disease patients, I'm sure it'd be much, much higher. If we took a blood sample of, of people who have psychiatric neurological symptoms, I'm sure it'd be much higher than that. But if a healthy population with no known disease and no symptoms, we found that it was around between 15 and 20%, depending on if we check gamma gliadin, alpha gliadin, or gluteomorphin. Um, and that's different than what, you know, celiac disease is supposed to be, you know, one per, less than 1% of the population. So it's not just celiac disease. Remember, the research is showing gluten sensitivity. Right. What are the best lab tests to determine brain inflammation? So that's, that's a good question. So th there isn't like a great lab test to determine brain inflammation. You can measure brain antibodies for autoimmune reactions, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's brain inflammation. So antibodies means your immune system is reacting against your brain, just like it would react against the virus or a pathogen. And that's the hallmark of autoimmune disease. Those can be done with blood. So those are called neurological antibodies. There's different proteins like GAD65 or myelin-basic protein that can be measured um, that we kind of talked about. But neuroinflammation is there is no good blood test. There are some imaging studies, mm -hmm. which are amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they do PET scans and you drink a dye and then immune cells in the brain called glial cells, you can see their level of activity. So they take up more of the dye, the more the more active they have to become to deal with inflammation. But those aren't something you do in a 
daily setting or even in a commercial setting. Those are only done in research universities for different studies because of the expense and cost and limitations of the equipment to uh, the general public. So there really isn't a good test. You just have to kind of really look at how you feel. Subjective indications are very, very important. So just your focus, your contention, your concentration, um, your recovery, your brain endurance, those are all big factors of letting you know what's happening. Now, when there's inflammation in the brain, um, another thing that happens is the inflammation starts to shut down um, cells in the brain, um, or I should say the energy powerhouse of cells may called mitochondria. So inflammation makes these energy producing uh, mechanisms in the cell in the brain very inefficient. So another common feature of brain inflammation is just brain fatigue. So you maybe you don't notice any significant change in your brain function, but you'll notice you can't drive as long. You can't read as long. That's what inflammation can do to the brain. So it could just be an endurance issue or it could be um, uh, very significant where you're, you're just not getting nerve conduction, nerve conduction happening, which is the speed of neuron synapses. And that can cause the typical brain fog symptoms. And then it can be more progressive to full-blown depression or some kind of psychiatric symptom. Okay. Okay. So Owen is asking, for those who opt not to go completely gluten and dairy-free, is there are there steps they can take to build up their gut lining to potentially lower or eliminate reactivity? Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, not everyone's going to have severe reaction to gluten. Some people have just then balance gut where they just need to heal their gut for a little bit to not react to food proteins as much as before. <clears throat> so for example, let's say you don't have celiac disease, you don't have an autoimmune disease, you've been on antibiotics for a while, you get some leaky gut from, from the antibiotics for that period of time, you may be more reactive to gluten. And if you take things like glutamine and clean up your diet for a few weeks, you may really resolve that. And you may, you may notice you don't have as many reactions to it. That's the basic leaky gut model. So those are, you know, the question is, what nutrients do you take? Or no, it just they, they it sounded like they don't yeah. want to go gluten and dairy free. Oh, all the way. they don't want to go gluten and dairy free. They just want yeah. to, but they want to be able to fill their gut. Right. I don't know. It's hot. I mean, so it really depends. Like, listen, if you have celiac disease, you can you can heal your gut, which you should do. But if you get exposed to gluten, you're gonna have severe reaction for a long period of time. If you don't have celiac disease, it won't be as as significant. Because remember, celiac disease is a gene type where there's an exaggerated immune response to gluten more than the average person. It's an exaggerated T-cell response. So they're, they're different. So it depends on it. For a lot of people, just supporting their gut can be very beneficial. Um, and again, we have uh, solving the gut, solving uh, the gut health, solving the puzzle program. If you want to learn how to identify your gut issue, how to follow strategies to improve your gut function step-by-step, um, step, that, that can be very useful to you. So it really depends on the degree of severity you have. Okay, a couple more questions. Okay. Um, if one has gluten ataxia and follows gluten-free, dairy-free, you know, the proper diet, what else can be done to improve or prevent ataxia from progressing? Right. So if you have gluten ataxia where you noticed gluten definitely impacted your brain, you close your eyes and you can't walk in a straight line. Mm -hmm. First of all, being gluten-free is very important. Fixing your gut is, is, is critical. Again, you can check out the Gut Health Solving the Puzzle program if you need some guidance to step walk you through all the different steps involved here in the gut, because it's not like you just take probiotics. It's not that simple. Um, and then the other thing you really want to do is you really want to start doing balanced exercises, because once your neurons get injured, they have to reconnect. Uh, 
The neurons can't reconnect until they get activated. So they have to kind of just branch into each other, which is called plasticity. So you want to start doing balance exercises. The balance exercise could be as simple as you putting your hands next to the hallway so you don't fall and then just trying to close your eyes and see how you do. It could be putting your feet together with your eyes open and trying not to shake. You could do yoga. You can get a balance board, but you have to do some actual activation to get those neurons to connect. If you have cerebral, say you have gluten ataxia. So gluten-free diet, gluten dairy-free diet, I mean, maybe autoimmune paleo diet would be even better. And then go through the gut health solving the puzzle program, go through all the steps to support your gut function that are specific to you, and then do some balanced exercise. Okay, a couple more questions. Okay. Um, it's from Michael, and I'm I'm gonna read it, but I think this is what he means. Um, from the subject of misdiagnosis disease, yeah. what would you say are the most prevalent ones when it comes to gluten sensitivity? Which I think I think he means what do people sometimes get confused for, but it's actually a gluten sensitivity or can be a gluten sensitivity. Right. So any kind of weird diverse brain symptoms, um, or a person has depression or a person has nerve nerve pain or swelling or have dizziness or vertigo or have ringing in the ear, and it's, these things are getting worse and they can't think and they can't focus. You always have to think of gluten sensitivity. And actually, any kind of neurological disease, because they've, they've been linked, whether it's uh, multiple sclerosis or, or uh, Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's or cognitive, sometimes there's a link with gluten as being part of the picture. It's not the only part of it. So um, they're all up. They're all up for grabs. Now, the most common one people complain about is just they can't think, they can't focus, they can't concentrate, their brain endurance is going down. They think they're progressing to dementia and they probably have some, some degree of promotion of inflammation in the brain with the, with the gluten sensitivity, but those are, those are things that are there. Okay. Um, is there a good test to show just inflammation? There really isn't a great test just for inflammation. There's markers called C-reactive protein, which are the most common tests. Um, they're... Is something called ESR, erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Those are the most common tests they, 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 they use in blood testing to, to look for inflammation. But you have to have severe inflammation to have those markers show up. Yeah. And they're not going to find subtle inflammation. The, 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 the subtle inflammation that causes brain fog and joint swelling and joint fatigue and all that is, is not always going to really show up with raising those lab markers. So there really isn't the best test for that. Sometimes, again, subjective symptoms are very important. You have these subtle reactions. Okay. How about the best test to see if you have autoimmunity going on? Well, the best test for autoimmunity is antibodies. The problem with that is that there isn't like one antibody you check for all autoimmune diseases. So there's several hundred autoimmune diseases and there's different proteins for each one. So for example, thyroid autoimmunity, you check for by measuring TPO and thyroglobulin. Um, if you have anti-nuclear antibodies, ANA antibodies, that puts you in a class of whole things like arthritic autoimmune diseases like lupus, uh, scleroderma. If you have brain autoimmunity, you may only show up with myelin-basic protein, or you may not even show up with myelin protein, you may show up with myelin-associated glycoprotein. So the difficulty is sometimes finding the right antibody. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. And uh, please uh, join our Facebook page, like us Twitter, all the things you're supposed to do, social media. <laughs> and uh, thanks again. Bye. You can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. 
You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have, and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about.